We are continuing this morning in our study of the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that passage on page 1279, Hebrews 6. Last week, we looked at one of the most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews, possibly one of the most difficult in the entire Bible. A strong warning to God's people to pursue maturity in the faith, lest they be found to have come short. It's a hard message to hear. This week, the author gives the foundation on which we stand while we pursue that maturity. As always, as always, we need the Holy Spirit to speak His truth to us. So if you're able, please stand now as I pray and remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 6. Pray with me. This is your word. We come to it because only in it can we find truth. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would send your word, your truth, like a hammer to break the rocks that are our hearts. Our hearts are so hard. We are so turned away from you and turned toward our own desires and what we want your word to say. But you are stronger. Lord Jesus, give us your spirit this morning in a special way that we might see past our blinders to your truth. That we might believe with our whole hearts that you would give us a heart of flesh, a soft heart to trust and to believe your word this morning. And as we study it, we pray that you would be glorified and that we would be drawn to love you more dearly, to see you more clearly, to worship you with our whole lives. We need your Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, be present with us, be present among us, be present in us, guiding our thoughts into your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 11. This is I'm sorry, in verse 9, this is God's Word. The author has just finished his very strong warning, and then he picks up in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge 
might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Michael Bond, not James Bond, Michael Bond, is a bit of an expert on the subject of lostness, particularly of getting lost and being lost. Here's what he says. Children lost in the woods is a common motif in in modern fairy tales and in ancient mythology. Usually in fiction, there's some kind of redemption. Snow White rescued by the dwarves, even Hansel and Gretel facing certain doom in that gingerbread house, somehow manage to find their way home. The reality is often more grim. During the 18th and 19th centuries, getting lost was one of the most common causes of death among the children of European settlers in the North American wilderness. Getting lost. Researcher Dr. Uh, Jan Soman used GPS monitors to try and follow out and see how this worked out. He used GPS monitors to track numerous volunteers as they tried to walk in a straight line without the aid of technology through Germany's Beinwald Forest or in the Sahara Desert. What he found is that when clouds obstructed the sun, errors quickly accumulated. Small deviations became large deviations, and without exception, people ended up walking in circles. With no external cues to help them, Dr. Salman determined that people will not move more than about 100 meters, straight line meters, from their original starting position, no matter how long they spend walking. We walk in circles. In the absence of landmarks and boundaries, our head direction cells can't compute direction and distance. And they leave us flailing in space. So what's the lesson? Pay careful attention lest you lose sight of your landmarks, of those markers that can hold you on the right path. Related to that idea, as a culture, what is our greatest fear? What is it that keeps people awake at nights? It isn't primarily, in my opinion, it isn't primarily pain or death, though those are each significant fears. It isn't dependency on others, though that begins to get a little closer. I think our, the greatest fear of our time is simply this, being wrong. And more than that, being seen to be wrong. Being wrong in public. This fear is by no means unique to us in the modern age or in the West. What might be unique is the way that our culture, ostrich-like, attempts to handle that fear. Until very recently, just a couple of years ago, there was a stronger and stronger push for all people everywhere to agree that there is no actual wrong. Nothing is actually wrong. There's just what works for me, what works for you. Each equally valid. 
all opinions. All choices are equally right as long as they allow for all other opinions, all other choices, the privilege of being right as well. Live and let live became the mantra of the day. And it, honestly, it remains the mantra of the day in a lot of places. Now, I don't have any sociological data to back, th- back this up, but I think this stems from our almost instinctual knowledge that we will one day stand before a judge. And we're terrified of being wrong, of being judged as wrong, being found to be in the wrong before the judge. And so in our fear, we deny that there is such a thing as right and wrong. as comforting as it might sound to have a life without any limits, without any rules, without any right and wrong, over the last five to seven years maybe, there's been a major shift, and honestly in retrospect, a a wholly predictable shift, although nobody really predicted it. As a culture, we very quickly discovered that as nice as it may be for me to have no limits, I'm really not comfortable with you having no limits. Because your no limits could impinge on me. We began to recognize that certain things, certain actions are simply wrong. They are in desperate need of justice, which the human system seems to be completely incapable of meeting out. But we had a problem because we no longer had or accepted any concept of a God who is the righteous judge to whom we could appeal for true justice. This world was all that we acknowledged, and this world is failing to give justice, and the problem remained. We needed for sin to be punished, to be judged, despite the fact that we'd thrown out the category of sin entirely. So instead of a just judge, we resort to mob justice, to canceling people for ideas deemed out of bounds. But that only made our private terror worse, our private terror of being judged as wrong worse before we feared the righteous judge who might in righteousness find us to be wrong now We fear the mindless, faceless, ravenous rage machine always looking for the next meal. And so we live in perpetual fear of being wrong and being wrong publicly where that rage machine will catch us and strip us to the bone. A passage like the one that we looked at last week that insists that there is a judgment with firmly fixed right and wrong and more, that there are some who will be judged wrong, who will fail to receive approval. Such a passage is quite difficult because it points out our greatest fears, that there is a wrong answer and that we might be found to be holding the wrong answer. But in addition, it also treads all over our toes, telling us that just because you're working hard doesn't mean you're working hard at the right things. Doesn't even guarantee that hard work is the way to have the right answer. And 
in the wake of that sort of passage, we have to begin to recognize, as, as Scripture says, that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees who were the ultimate hard workers from a, a religious standpoint, right? On the heels of that passage, the natural question for someone from literally any culture must have been, can anyone be saved? Is there any hope at all for me? How in the world could anybody overcome all of the awfulness and the wrong that exists? And if there is hope, how can I know it? And so following immediately on the heels of the warning, our author addresses that precise concern. But here's the thing, he doesn't address it in the way that I'd really like for him to, and I suspect most of us would really prefer. If he were to answer as we want him to answer, it would boil down to something along these lines. Here are the markers to know that you're in. Here's how you can be sure that what I just said applies to that guy over there who you've always had some questions about and not to you. Here's how you can know that you are in good with God. Here's how. Are you ready? Here's the list. Check off the list. Do X, Y, Z, Q, and D. And once you've done those things, you're good. Or if you want to be super holy, here's a couple of extra things. But as long as you do those, those basic things, you're good. You're in with God. That's what we want, right? We want that list. Maybe even we want him to give us some examples of those who have succeeded in the past, succeeded in the quest to earn righteousness from God, men and women who prove that it is possible to please God by their actions. We want the author to say, Jesus came to prove that you can live a righteous life in the world. And then he died and rose again to prove that you can do that too. That's what we want, if we're honest what we expect but that isn't what the author tells them instead of giving them advice instead of some version of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps what does he do he tells them about the faithfulness of god the sufficiency of the promise of god to bring about their blessing he tells them not of what god demands that they do but of god's promise to act for them in their place reminds them that even under the levitical system the emphasis was not on what people did for god but what god promised to do for the people for his people every system that humans have ever created without exception every system that humans have ever created is some version of do this for me, and then I'll do something for you. It's always the lesser person who has to perform for the greater person, right? And then the greater responds to the work that the lesser has done by giving something some of value, whatever. And it, let's be honest, this continues today, right? You go to the cable company and you say, I'd like your service, and what do they say? Give me money first, and then I'll give you my service. But then you go to your job, and what happens? The job says, you work first, and then I'll give you money. The greater always responds to the work of the lesser. In every version of human culture, the lesser has to earn the favor of the greater, and the greater chooses 
what or whether to pay. But look at verses 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says to imitate those who have faith and patience. And so what we expect to follow that is here's what Abraham did to have faith and be patient and thus inherit the promises. That's the logical next thought from where we're sitting, right? But where the author goes next is not what Abraham did, but what God did. What God did so that Abraham would certainly receive the inheritance. The promise was made by God. The result was guaranteed by God. The author will get, we're going to get to the responsibility of faith to respond, response, responsibility to respond to what the Lord has done. We'll get to that in a couple, three chapters. We'll get there, but it's important to understand the foundation on which we stand first. From this perspective, at least, Abraham is entirely passive. He received the promise from God, and then later he received the fulfillment of the promise from God. All he did was wait patiently, and if you're at all familiar with Abraham's story from Genesis, this is the broadest definition of patient I've ever heard in my entire life. Dude did not do patient real well, which is actually encouraging now that I think about it. This is such an unexpected thing. It would would have been unexpected in Abraham's time as well, uh, that the greater the Lord would pledge himself to the lesser, not only without prior payment, but without chance of receiving any benefit in return. This was such a strange thing, even then, that God, whose word cannot be broken, gave an oath on top of the promise. The author here, I think, makes it clear that the oath was for the benefit of, verse 17, the heirs of the promise. It wasn't as much for Abraham, although he did benefit from it. It was as it was for those who would come later, who didn't have in those later generations who had not spoken to God face to face. We are prone to disbelieve. We have only our experience of other people, right? That's all the experience we have to judge God's promises by. And let's be honest, Dr. House was right. Everybody lies. So God provided proof of his promise. It wasn't required. Since his word cannot be broken, all he has to do to guarantee something is say it. His bare word enough was sufficient to create everything that exists. So his bare word, simply saying, I will do this, is sufficient to guarantee that it's going to happen, period, without exception, no question at all. But for our sake, he gave us an additional proof. He offered an oath. An oath that was not required, but that helps us to trust his faithfulness. Why? Because it was a category that we understand. He was, to use the kind of fancy older term, he was condescending to us, coming down and speaking language that we understand, even though it wasn't necessary. 
in all human dealings, verse 16, oaths are final because the implication is, if I'm swearing falsely, let the one whom my oath references judge me guilty and punish me for it. If I were to say, I swear before God that I will do fill in the blank for you, what I'm really saying is that I acknowledge that God is a just judge who will punish me if I break this oath. And thus, by my fear of that punishment, I guarantee that what I say I'll do. We still have this today to an extent, though it, it certainly looks different. We sign legally binding contracts. If I fail to live up to the terms of this contract, I have already agreed that you can take me to court and that the court will find in your favor. When we argue contracts in court, we don't argue that the court does or does not have authority in the matter, but rather that the other guy was in breach first, and so you should rule against him and in my favor. It ain't, it's his fault, not mine. These contracts are, in effect, though we don't use this language, they are, in effect, an oath before the U.S. court system. I swear before the U.S. contracts court that I will keep the terms listed herein. Of course, God didn't need to guarantee his promise. It was as sure as anything has ever been. It was, in fact, more sure than that the sun will rise tomorrow. It is more sure than that the sun will rise tomorrow simply because he said it. His word is unchangeable because it stands on his character. But he chose to give us a confirmation that we would understand as certain so that we would trust him more fully. His word is unchangeable. His oath by himself is unchangeable. But why does he do this? What benefit is created by this action of his, by this oath in addition to his word? I was a Boy Scout for a long time, um, worked all the way, you know, I, I was a scout all the way through my, my youth years, and then after I graduated high school, I was a, a volunteer for a while. I worked a couple of summers at a scout camp. Uh, one year, I taught climbing and rappelling, and it was a great time. I, you know, I got to spend all summer, every, five days a week, playing on the climbing wall. It was great. I taught a couple of classes every, each week of uh, 12 to 15-year-old boys who wanted to learn about climbing and rappelling, adrenaline junkies in the making, most of them. But there was usually a rhythm to how the week went, how the classes went through the week. Uh, Monday, before we could get on the wall, we had to learn knots and ropes and how the gear was supposed to fit together because most of these guys had never been climbing or rappelling before, and so they had to learn how do you arrange the gear so that it'll keep you safe. So the first day was learning knots, ropes, harnesses, learning to trust the gear intellectually, at least. But the truth was that I could tell them as often as I wanted. I could tell them that I was blue in the face, that this climbing rope can hold up a VW bug without even trying hard. But they wouldn't believe it until they'd experienced it. They could hold 20 to 30 of them all together at the same time with no trouble at all. But they didn't believe it. Oh, they, they intellectually accepted that idea. But there's a vast difference between an intellectual understanding that this little rope that's not even an inch thick can hold up a car and I've got to lean back off the top of a 30-foot tower with just this rope to hold me up. Those are two real different things. A few, a few, a few trusted simply because I told them. 
Mostly, though, they, we'd get up to the top of that tower, and those who had no experience climbing, which was most of them, who'd never done this before, would get to the edge and get real nervous, get real quiet, and not want to move. They would take steps towards the edge, because you had to back towards the edge, but the steps would get smaller and smaller the closer they got to the edge. They didn't trust my promise. They had to experience the rope holding them up with no trouble at all before they could truly trust it to hold them up. So Monday was learning knots and such. Tuesday, they climbed the tower with great fear, most of them, knowing that it was only their hands and feet that held them up as they were getting up that tower, and if they fell, it was going to be messy. And then they got to the top of the tower, and they were required to rappel down the other side, and then it got real hard. And they went, went down using a rope that they didn't really trust very, very slowly. And over the course of the week, we would have them climb and rappel multiple times a day, as well as holding the rope for the other boys as they climbed and rappelled. And each time it would get a little easier. Because each time they discovered that the rope was actually trustworthy. By Friday, generally, generally, by Friday they were racing each other down the rappelling wall. Boys being competitive, as they are, often as not, on Friday we would have guys doing speed runs and time trials to see who could get down that 30-foot wall the fastest. That boy that stood at the top, trembling knees, fearing to lean back over the wall with just the rope to hold him up on Tuesday, by Friday was bounding down 30 feet of wall in two steps. They had learned by experience that the rope was trustworthy. In this life, all our experience tells us that words alone are not sufficient. All our experience tells us that people lie and cheat and do whatever they can to get any advantage that they can. That if we go to someone with power and ask them for something, we have no guarantee that they will do what they say they will do. Because they have the power and we don't. And we carry that distrust into our relationship with God. And so God gave us what we needed to trust Him to show that his word is trustworthy, to get us over that initial ledge, to begin to see that the rope is actually trustworthy so that we could experience his trustworthiness firsthand. Because just like those Boy Scouts in the rope, the more we experience that he is trustworthy, the more we are able to trust it. Because each time we trust him, we learn that he is worthy of our trust and will never fail. Why did the author tell us that God, what God did rather than what we are to do as we would have expected? Because the fact is, while there are requirements, there are things that must be done so that the promise can be fulfilled, so that we can receive the benefits, the responsibility for those things rests entirely on him and not on us. The responsibility for those things was entirely on God and not on Abraham and not on us. Christian, your status before God does not depend on what you do or don't do. 
Your status before God does not depend on how you feel or don't feel. It does not depend on your ability to trust, on the strength of your faith. It does not depend on what you do. You cannot be so good, so faithful, so sinless. You cannot be so good that you will make God love you one little tiny bit more than he does right now. And you cannot be so bad, Christian, as to make him love you one tiny bit less than he does right now. You cannot sin your way out of his favor. Because you didn't earn your way into his favor. If you are his child, if you're a Christian, then your receiving of the blessings promised is 100% totally dependent on his action, which does not change. His action, that is finished. It's done. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, into verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. There's a subtle wordplay going on here. Our our hope is that which goes behind the curtain. In temple worship, you may know this already, the curtain was what separated the holy of holies, the most holy place in the temple where uh, symbolically at least, that was the locus of God's very present, the presence, the throne on which he sat. His presence in the world was in the Holy of Holies. And the curtain separated him and his holiness from everything else and all of our sin. The only one who could go behind the curtain was the high priest. And then only after a specific series of sacrifices, because he came as representative of the whole people bearing all of their sin that had to be cleansed before he could enter God's presence, lest he be destroyed for that sin. He was representative of the people before God, asking for God's favor, asking for the forgiveness of their sin, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on our behalf. Jesus is our hope. He went behind the curtain to obtain forgiveness for the people of God. As far as that goes, the description is fitting for a high priest, really for any high priest, but I skipped something, didn't I? He says where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The promise of God, of which Abraham received only just the barest hint of the beginnings of the blessing promise of God is that in Christ we will have complete access to God. Complete access to God. We will be able to go behind the curtain into His very presence. Not to ask forgiveness, but to spend time with the one who loves us perfectly. To spend time with the one who knows you to the core of your being down to your toenails and loves you anyway. Loves you perfectly. In fact, one of the small details of the, uh, the gospel resurrection accounts that is often missed is that the curtain, when Jesus died, was torn, opening the way to the Holy of Holies. Torn top to bottom. 
We have been given access to God, not because we have done anything, but because God promised it. And what God promises, He accomplishes. Period. After such a strong warning about the necessity of pursuing holiness, about not being willfully neglectful, as we looked at last week, the author reminds us again that our salvation, our hope, depends entirely on God. You are secure in Christ, period. But just as my climbers had to learn to trust the rope and the gear, we have to learn to trust God. He's no more trustworthy after we learn to trust Him as He is right now. He's perfectly trustworthy now, but I don't trust Him very well now. And so I have to learn to trust Him more by experience. Whether we have learned to trust Him well or poorly, He is still trustworthy, and our hope depends only on His work. Whether those boys I taught trusted the rope a lot or not at all didn't change the strength of the rope. Whether they trusted the rope a lot or not at all, it didn't change the ability of the rope to hold them up. Their faith in the rope didn't hold them up. The rope held them up. Your faith in Christ is not what saves you. Christ is what saves you. He is our high priest. His finished work, his entrance into the presence of God on the basis of his sacrifice of himself, he did not, as we so often think, return bringing salvation with him. Rather, he brought us to God, cleansed, made perfect, gave us the same access that he has. Yes, there is a responsibility to respond to his grace in certain ways. There is a right and a wrong and a necessity to pursue right and reject wrong, and we'll talk about that as we get later in the book. But that is the response of faith to the finished work of Christ. It is not the means by which we earn that, or that righteousness. It is not the means by which we secure access to God. Christian, you have it already because Christ purchased it for you, period. When you fear that you will stand before the judge and maybe not measure up, let's be honest, you're right. If you were to stand in your own works, in your own ability before the judge, you would not measure up. You would be rejected. No matter how good you've been as a human, you would be rejected. But when you fear the judgment, remember that Jesus has, by his death and resurrection, he has secured access for you, not as one who will be judged, but as a beloved child. As a beloved child of the King. Christian, you are secure. God is trustworthy, though every man be proved a liar. The rope will hold your weight and much more beyond. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore the appropriate response, but child of God, Christian, you are secure because Christ made you secure and because Christ keeps you secure, period. He does it all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you 
speak in a way that we can understand, that you give us what we need to learn to trust you more. You are trustworthy, period. End of conversation. But we fail to trust. And so you give us what we need that we would lean back into, put our weight on the rope. We pray, Lord, that we would trust you evermore. That we would be bold in our trust in you, fleeing to you when we sin, running to you, that you would heal us, that you would bandage our brokenness, that you would restore us and make us right as your beloved child. Your son, you purchased that access. Let us rest in your finished work, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now as we continue to worship through. Nope, I'm sorry. Automatic. Automatic. Every time. (laughs) You have heard the gospel proclaimed. The Lord Jesus does not simply say, here is the truth, believe it. So we talked about he gave us tools. He gave us an oath so that we would understand and comprehend that he is trustworthy, but he gives us more than that. He engages all of our senses, the whole of our being. He gives us a meal, which isn't just a, it is a representation of his finished work on the cross, but it isn't just that. It is also the means by which he communicates his grace, by which he builds in us almost like tending a plant in you, builds in you, grows in you deeper and deeper faith and trust by the means of this meal. We don't understand how that works. I can't, you know, write a science textbook to explain that. But he, he says that he does, and his word is trustworthy, that this is a means of grace. You, you know this, I've said it every, every time we have this, this supper. There's nothing magical in the, the crackers. There's nothing magical in the grape juice or the wine. It's not like there's something in the substance of those things that brings grace to us. The Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit working together have chosen this ordinary thing, these ordinary means. And when united with faith in the believer, communicates grace to you strengthens your trust in the rope allows you more and more to pursue those time trials to trust the rope so much that you can race down into God's arms knowing that the rope will catch you this is one of the means by which he gives us that strength of faith if you are his this meal is for you As I've always said, if you're not his, because there's nothing magical in it, you will get no benefit from it. In fact, you are proclaiming that you wanted Jesus dead by eating this meal. If you're not his, you get no benefit, and you're in fact eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. So I urge you, if you are not his, if you're not a Christian, let the cup, let the the bread pass by. Feel free to stay and observe. Those of you who are watching online, Unfortunately, there's no way to do this without being present among us. So reflect on, you know, as, as those of you who are here and not partaking, reflect on what God is doing in this meal. But if you are his, this meal is his grace given for you. 
through the means of his broken body and poured out blood. It is the establishment of the covenant, which is nothing more or less than God's promise to bless his people. His agreement, which he wrote, which he established, and which if it is broken, all of the penalty falls on him. It is his covenant guaranteeing your blessing, Christian. This is his grace to you. Hear what Paul says about it. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took up the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is a serious thing. It's not just some ceremony that we do. The Lord himself is present in this. Not physically, spiritually. He is present among us, communicating himself, communicating his grace in this, these ordinary things. Christian, you who are the adopted children of God, this is his grace for you. Receive it now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for this meal by which you communicate grace to us. We pray that you would, as you have promised, that you would cause trust, faith in you to spring up in us, to grow ever larger and ever stronger, that we might trust you more. Give us grace to believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. Use these ordinary things give us what is extraordinary what is impossible apart from your mercy give us yourself as you have promised let your name be praised as we eat this covenant meal together we pray it in jesus name